Hello everyone, welcome to Behind the Scenes in Health podcast. This podcast is a show where we are focused on finding out what happens behind the scenes in the healthcare industry. We focus on Nigeria, Africa and the diaspora. A lot of persons do not have an idea of the sheer grit and determination that goes on with building healthcare, starting from training in school to building healthcare businesses. My name is Ronald Kelechi, we are popularly known as Dr. Ron. I am a medical doctor with a postgraduate degree in clinical anatomy. I'm currently pursuing another in health informatics. I'm interested in healthcare technologies, innovation, informatics, and health content creation. By the side, I run MRI Medic, a company focused on helping healthcare companies tell their brand stories. Join me on the show as I interview and have chats with experts across the healthcare space including players in health technology, seasoned clinicians, finance experts, and healthcare professionals who have veered off the practice. It is my hope that with this podcast, we will shed light on some of these great areas and hopefully inspire the next generation of healthcare professionals, one conversation at a time. So, good evening, everybody. If you're watching, welcome to this evening's uh, session with Dr. Peppel. Uh, we'll just be talking about uh, life as a GP, uh, how he came to be where he is at the moment. Uh, basically, it's one of the conversation in the series on um, issues around migration, how do doctors navigate the whole process, and you know, just a little bit of uh, insights because it's usually good to hear from those who have uh, gone through that journey. I mean, it's not the uh, hearsay or they said they said i mean that's why i brought him here to come and share with us the story yeah he's popularly known as dr pepper but i'll leave him to introduce himself to us so dr pepper let's meet you hi thank you very nice to i'm happy to be here so um my name is doc my name is uh, douglas yellow pepper um yeah so dr pepper for sure i think that's just the one for branding basically <laughs> yeah, and I'm Nigerian. I'm from the south part of Nigeria, uh, specifically River State, Port Harcourt. And yeah, I live and I work here in the UK now. Uh, what else is there to know? I think as we progress, we'll talk about my journey and um, and every other thing around it. So that's it basically for now. Yeah, I think I agree with you. That's uh, enough for an intro as we move uh, to un- unravel the man behind people so how did you uh get to become a gp what's the whole process like i mean i mean different persons they have different stories about how they came to become a gp in the uk some come through education uh some come uh, directly through plab and you know different methods really so what's your story what how did you get to the uk yeah so uh thanks for that so basically um, I came to the UK after medical school, straight on after medical school, I came uh, because, I mean, I knew I wanted to come to the UK. I was going to come to the UK, so it wasn't any waste of time or anything like that. So I finished medical school and I did normal youth service, no, no normal house job, which is internship, which you have to do back in Nigeria. So then afterwards, I came in to do my master's. Uh, I did master's in reproductive medicine, science and ethics from the University of Kent in Canterbury, basically focusing on assisted reproductive technologies and in vitro fertilization using animal models. So, and whilst I was doing that, 
like I said, I knew I was going to practice in the UK. So whilst I was doing that, I start, started looking at options on how to practice in the UK permanently. And so that means, you know, doing the British licensing exams, which is the PLAB exams. So I did that. I did all the process, the English test, PLAB 1, PLAB 2, then got my GMC registration and license to practice in the UK as a doctor. And yeah, then started working as a doctor. I think my first job was um, I worked as a resident medical officer in private hospital. Did that for about two years, then moved over to the NHS, did some surgical jobs in London uh, before moving to train as a GP, as a a family physician, which is called general practice in the UK. So that's it, basically. Interesting. So when you were say, uh, talking, something struck to me, you know, I mean, you, were you doing the MSc and preparing for PLAB at the same time, or how did you manage to do that? Yeah, so MSc program in the UK, are, there are different types. So mine was the taught one, meaning you have lectures. So, and it was also master's by by dissertation. Okay. So it was a nine months program. Ah, nine months. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So we were literally having lectures like once or twice in a week. So you have the rest of the time to to do whatever you want to do. Okay. So at the end of the nine months, you we had about we had about seven months of lectures and all of that, then two months intensive uh, lab work for your dissertation. Because it was a practical course. So it was okay. mostly lab work and all of that. So I I knew I was going to practice in the UK. So what I did was I had to plan. I planned everything. Myself. I mean, I'm quite a very good planner. So I looked at when I was going to be free, have a bit of uh, spare time to study, and when it was going to be intense in terms of my academic work. So, and also bear in mind how long my visa was. So I want to make sure that I finish everything before my visa runs out. Expires, okay. Yeah, and remember then there was no post-study visa. So you have to make sure you finish everything on time. Otherwise you'll go back to your country. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which was a bit of what happened to me, to be honest. So during the master's program, I didn't do anything other than just do the English exams. The IELTS. Okay. So, but I was unlucky. I didn't pass the IELTS first. So I got 7.0. You need 7.5 to qualify to sit the PLAB exams. So when I got 7.0, I was a bit frustrated and disappointed. So I thought maybe the UK thing is not for me anymore. <laughs> so I started looking at it. Seriously. So when I see people getting a bit discouraged now, I, I mean, it resonates with me. I can understand them. So I started looking at options. Where can I go apart from the UK to practice without going back to Nigeria? That will accept an IELTS of 7.0 instead of 7.5. Wow. Okay. So then I looked at uh, Ireland. You know, Ireland is not part of the UK. It's a Northern Ireland that's part of the UK. So Dublin, they accept IELTS of 6.57, I think. So I started looking at their entrance exams. So whilst I was looking at how to do their entrance exams, one of my friends was also preparing for IELTS. So we prepared together again, and I wrote the IELTS this time around, and I passed it. So I had to abandon the Ireland plan and just focus on the UK. 
<laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So after the, I think after the IELTS, then it was time for dissertation. So I didn't bother about preparing for PLAB or anything. So I had to focus on getting a good grade for my master's. Okay. Yeah. So immediately after my dissertation, then I registered for PLAB once I attending lectures. Um, I was preparing alongside one of my friends as well. So we had very uh, tight schedule on practicing and, and all of that. I did a video on YouTube on how I prepared for PLAB 1 in three weeks. Yes, I'm still going to come to that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that was it. So we did that in three weeks, passed PLAB 1, registered for PLAB 2, passed PLAB 2, and the rest is history. That's it. So I did them alongside the master's in a way. So I did the lighter part where it wasn't going to be stressful during the master's. And after the master's, since I still had about six, seven months on my visa, then I had to focus on the whole PLAB journey afterwards. Okay. So in terms of planning, you, you said you're a very good planner. But I mean, I'm trying to imagine the difficulty of, you know, trying to read for PLAB and, you know, worrying about your dissertation or your schools because i know in the uk uh the msc is pretty intense i mean mm -hmm. though it varies from school to school but how were you really able to you know break that down yeah yeah it's really intense i think what happened also was for me i didn't have the problem of or the extra um should i say pressure of working so i wasn't working so i wasn't doing students job which I actually regret. I regret Why? I should have done. Yeah, because that's like some extra money I should have done. Because I was getting money from home. Everything all paid for from home. So I didn't see the need to work. You know, so I was okay. concentrating on just doing my master's and doing these exams. So, but it was during, after my master's, like after the dissertation, uh, then I realized that, okay, I think I also didn't know that you could actually work. I knew you could work, but I was with, the, with a circle of friends who were not interested in work. Okay. So that, so that influenced me a lot, you know. But later, why I say I regret it is later when I saw people who actually worked and how much they made and they were still able to go <laughs> <laughs> and they were still able to go through school very smoothly. So I was like, come on, man, I should have done this. But yeah, so that is it. My lectures was just twice a week. Okay. So you have the whole twice physical lectures. The rest of the time is either you're doing assignments or you're doing paperwork or you're doing lab work. And some assignments and presentations will take you about 1,000, 2,000 words. So it was busy, busy and quite intense as well, even though we're not actually going for lectures every day. Yeah. So the assignments kept you really busy anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? What also happened was because I was doing something very, very different from what I've always known. Yeah. Being a doctor, coming to do bi biomedical sciences because it was purely molecular biology, purely biotechnology and laboratory work, which is what I haven't ever done before. So first so of all, I had to go back. No, Yeah. So I had to go back to even read about molecular biology very well to understand the basis of, you know, of DNA, <clears throat> you know, sequencing and 
all those sort of hereditary patterns, you know, co-core molecular biology, which is what you don't get to know in medical school. That's not part of your curriculum. Yeah. You know? So, and why it was challenging is because there are people in your class who have degree in molecular biology. Wow. Who have first degree in this day. Some of them even have masters in that subject and nobody waits for you. So you come to class, lecturer just mentioned something. They already know what the lecturer is talking about. You don't have any idea. So you have to go back, read and read and read until you understand until you get to the point of even understanding what they already what? know before you start building on it. So it was pretty difficult. It was hard. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I think that would have kept you really very busy. I mean, yeah. it's it's not easy, you know, dabbling into a new terrain that, you know, uncharted waters before mm. and mm. They're trying to get the hang of it. They're talking about the training itself, like GP training. How would you describe it is it intense is it heavy is it difficult you know mm -hmm. judging from what we have here in nigeria i mean it might be a different ballgame but, but what was your experience like yeah so first of all i just want to clarify things so many nigerians when they when you finish medical school in nigeria before you start residency so you probably pick up job as a um, resident officer or medical officer or something like that. Yeah. And most and most people just call them GPs, which is okay. actually what they are, right? But yeah. in the UK, GP is different. GP is family medicine. So it's actually a specialty. Specialty, Plus, yeah. Even today on Twitter, I was having a conversation with someone who said he wants to uh, become a surgeon in the UK. I said, okay, so what do you do right now? He's in Nigeria. He said he's a GP. I said, oh, so that means you've gone through under uh, postgraduate training already. He said, no. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. So you're not a GP yet. <laughs> so like a medical a officer. <laughs> yeah, so he's a medical officer. So that's the context. So basically, general practice is family medicine. Uh, in America, it's family practice. So the training is for three years, but I hear they're trying to move it to four years. Although you have the integrated general practice training, which is four years, which uh, which is even five years. So you're doing training and in addition to that, you're going towards fellowship. So oh. you'll probably qualify after three years, then you still have two years more to you, even though you're qualified and you're working, but you're still going through a training program to become to get your fellowship. But yeah, but if you're doing the normal three years training. It is intense. It is difficult because imagine three years, you're going to go through different rotations and you have to do two exams within three years. Obviously, you're not allowed to do any of the exams in your first year of training. So that means wow. you have two exams to do in two years. Wow. Meaning one exam every year. So imagine when you don't even pass the exams, if you don't pass the first one and you have four attempts to do it. So imagine four if you attempt. do yeah, four attempts at each of the exams. Wow. So it's pretty, pretty much intense. And it's not just exams you're doing. So there are four elements that qualify you to be a GP, to get your CCT, which is a certificate of completion of training. So one is your work-based assessment. Um, you need to do your e-portfolio. Uh, you need to do the exams, you know, and 
you need to do your VTS. VTS is a vocational training scheme, which is the weekly meetings that GP trainees have with their trainers. So you need to meet up all these things together every year before you get your um your ARCP, which is um what progresses your moves you to your next year of training. You know, so it's like yeah. an assessment, you know, that you finish and they say, okay, we're happy with you. Then you move from that assessment for that year, you are marked to be satisfactory. Then you move to the second year. The same thing happens after the second year, you move to the third year. And after the third year, you get your final ARCP outcome. And then you now get your CCT. So it's pretty, pretty much intense, like from the beginning to the end. But some people uh, probably get buried in the work. Yeah. Which is just a component of the whole training. The work yeah. meaning service delivery, attending to patients, you know, coming to work every day. You can get buried in that because that's actually how you learn the craft. That's actually yeah. how you develop your skills. So, but you can get buried in that and forget that that alone is not going to progress you to become a GP. So you got other parts of the training to also focus and concentrate on. So the earlier you understand the different parts, all these, the different roles that all these parts play to eventually get you to finish your training on time and start giving appropriate time and attention to each of them, the better. Otherwise, one part will suffer. For instance, you might be doing well as a GP trainee, doing all your work-based assessment, attending word rounds, doing your presentations, doing your log entries, your e-portfolio, and you haven't passed your exams. Yeah. So if you don't pass, you have to apply for extension. So that keeps lengthening mm. your program because some people can be in the training for up to four or five years, and it will get to a point where they feel like you've not made the necessary progression or progress. And you might have to either get out of training or be, you know, be, be, be pushed out of training, basically. So they can actually chase you out from the program. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you can be kicked out of the training. Wow. Yeah. Because wow. if you don't meet up with the requirements, yeah, you are literally like a burden to the dean or the college because you yeah. get paid, right? So let's say there's a budget for your training. There's a budget for your training for three years. Your training is supposed to last for three years. Or by extension, you have about six months or even one year extra. So if you've exhausted the three years get you and you get yourself into an extra six months or one year and you're still getting paid. So at the end, you literally have exhausted what should be spent on you to train you. So if you want to continue, who's going to pay you? <laughs> so that's the thing. Yeah, I don't know the technicalities and the intricacies on how that works, but yeah. I know that there is a budget on your training, on every trainee, how much the government or the college or the dean spends on or is expected to spend on you to train you. So they also encourage you to make sure that that's why you have educational supervisors and you have uh, clinical supervisors who are supposed to monitor your progress of training. So they okay. guide you and make sure that you're doing what you should be doing at the right time. So you don't have one part suffering for the other. So basically, there, there is a good support system in terms of the training. To be honest, without sounding biased, I think GP training is the best supported program in the UK. 
Yeah. Okay. So because obviously when you're training, you have half of your training in the hospital and half in the GP practice. So whilst you're in the hospital, you interact with other trainees from other specialties, right? And you get to actually see how uh, the support they get from their deanery, from their college. And you see that GP trainees seem to have more support than some other specialties. I think the reason is because of how the program is structured, because apart from all the things you're doing at work, you have a an accountability group where you also meet weekly to discuss your progress in training and to have general training by different specialties, picking up interests and in different topics and even community topics also to teach you. And the fact that you have an educational supervisor and a clinical supervisor specifically attached to, to you for your training, although other trainees also have that, but most GP trainees are basically in hospital for service delivery. So that's okay. why you go into, uh, when you are training, when you, when you start, you choose what rotations you want to do, which is the flexibility in GP training compared to like in, the, in Nigeria or something. I'm just using Nigeria as an example because that's a system I understand very well. So yeah. if, you, if you're in family medicine in Nigeria, obviously you have no rights to choose where you're going. You're literally going to rotate through general surgery, um, pediatrics, opsungani, and internal medicine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But in the UK, no, it's not like that. So you have a block of rotations, about 50 blocks. So you can pick and choose what you want. So for instance, let's say you're coming into GP training and you have a background of ops and gyne. And that means you know a lot about of that. I don't want to do ops and gyne anymore. Okay. Yeah? So you can pick rotations that have different things that are, you are deficient in. So you learn more about it. Or if you're one of those people who want to be comfortable in their comfort zone, you can pick things that you are comfortable, you know already, so you don't want to go learn something new. Okay. So you can decide to pick, if you know Ops and Gyne very well, you can decide to pick Ops and Gyne, pick uh, endocrinology rotation, pick acute medicine, pick uh, ophthalmology. And that's only what you're going to do. Mm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it's just about your preference and what's available in the place you want to train as well. Okay, so basically the training centers also differ in terms of what they offer. Yeah, 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 they differ, but they have similarities. So when I say they differ, for instance, uh, let's say like where I trained, you have a block of endocrinology, dermatology, acute medicine, um, pediatrics and maybe psychiatry. So probably for you to do for four months in each of these rotations. Okay. But in a sister hospital, you probably have endocrinology, respiratory, general medicine, and ops and gyne. So you see, there is no uh, psychiatry, psychiatry in that box. Yeah. Then when you have psychiatry, you have psychiatry you have Opsungani, you have ENT and something else. So sometimes it might not be, you might not have that leverage of having exactly what you're looking for. Cool. So you have to make 
you have to arrive at a compromise. But every training program or every training centers have all the trainings, all the rotations, but they might not have it in the block that is the same as another sister hospital. Okay, is it possible for me to say, okay, probably I want to do um, endo uh, psychiatry, uh, ops and gynae, maybe pediatrics, and for some reason, pediatrics is somewhere else. Can I move to that other hospital to go and learn pediatrics? So there are two ways about it. One is, you know, NHS hospitals have different uh, smaller trusts that make up the, the, the big trust, right? Yeah. So like where I where I work or where I trained, you have in the east of England, you have three hospitals that make up the trust that, that are in the catchment area. So if you choose psychiatry to do, if, you, if you're doing like 18 months in a hospital, which is six months each, so you have psychiatry, ops and gynae, general medicine, your psychiatry and ops and gynae might be in this city and okay. your, and your, uh, your general medicine will be in another city. Okay. Which is still within the same area. So you spend six months, six months here, 12 months here, go six months to another city to go do your training. Okay, but yeah. still within the same catchment area. Yeah, within the same catchment area. That's one. But the other thing also I want to point out is, yeah, because obviously you're going to be working as a GP in the community. So if you haven't got any background at all in pediatrics, apart from your internship here, right? And you're not comfortable because you see a lot of pediatric cases as a GP. Okay. And you want to, to look for a way to do pediatrics, especially if you haven't done it in the UK. What you can do is you can organize with your program director to say okay. um, you want to do two weeks of pediatrics. So they will discuss with pediatrics department. So you can go over to pediatrics to do two weeks of your rotation there. Okay. Although it will not be in your proper training log and log, um, portfolio to say you wrote, you went through pediatrics rotation. So that is just an arrangement that can happen just so you have um, an exposure to pediatrics. So pediatrics, yes. Or, like or you can, sorry, or you can on your own during your annual leave do a tester week. Okay. Tester week is just going to spend one week in that unit and just learning more about the the uh the unit and the specialty or you can even spend some time attending their clinics alone or you can register for so many pediatric lessons and uh evening classes so they have evening classes where specialists specialist doctors in different fields have like either lunch or dinner uh, classes which is sort of mini conferences that trainees attend. So you can register. Are you free? Yeah, they're all free. Okay, okay. Yeah, so you can you can just keep out looking out for the emails of when oh, there is a pediatric teaching this weekend or this evening or whenever it is. Then make sure that if it's when you're going to work, you can book annual leave on that date so you attend it. But most times they happen in the evenings when you should be free to attend. So there's always a way to, to bridge the gap and to fill in your deficiencies, especially if you're very serious and hardworking. Okay. So the key word is hardworking. <laughs> yeah, hardworking. <laughs> hardworking. 
<clears throat> that's interesting so after qualification so what is life like a gp you know so i had uh gps are chilling they work at their own pace or their own hours and all of that so how does it really work yeah yeah, yeah. i think that's one of the perks of deciding to to become a gp so um it's not like they are chilling so that's a wrong impression <laughs> <laughs> that's a wrong impression because this is this is for this is for the masses this is public yeah. so they are not really chilling but it's just a sort of specialty that gives you that work-life balance because you can pick and choose what you want to do basically for the fact that gps don't do calls they are not on calls okay right so i think that is the the enticing part of the whole profession or the whole specialty the whole uh, training when you finish when you're training you'll be on call whilst you are in the hospital remember like if you're doing the three years gp training half of it is in hospital half of it is in the gp practice so whilst you're in hospital you're basically working like every other training so if you go to if you're rotating through uh, general medicine you're literally going to work as a general medicine sho registrar the way okay. they uncall, everything they do is what you're going to do. When you move to another specialty, you do literally the same thing. But when you now come to the GP land, which is the other 18 months of your training, you are not on call at all. The only thing you do is there are a number of hours you need to do what we call out-of-hours rotation or out-of-hours shifts to qualify you or to to add up to your work-based assessment during the training okay. so the essence of doing that is they want to expose you to unscheduled urgent care shifts to see wow. how you're able to adapt to emergency situations because out of hours most times are emergencies how you treat them how you triage patients and how you appropriately refer and treat them you know so but when you qualify now you don't have that obligation of being on call so I think that's the chilling part that so many people refer to. So okay. if you sign up to become a salary GP, because there are different options of work you can do. You can work as a salary GP, you can work as a partner GP, you can work as a um, locum GP, you can work as a principal partner. So there are different things you can do. So if you're working as a salaried, so you're not, you're not on call. The only on call you do is day on call. So you can be duty doctor on the day in your surgery. Typical you nine to five, right? Pardon? Like the typical nine to five, morning to yeah, evening. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Some surgeries can start eight o'clock to five or eight to six or nine to five. Where I work, we work eight to eight. That is the only surgery around here that work eight to eight every day. Okay. But obviously they have a different GMC contract. Oh, compared okay. to other other hospital other uh, surgeries okay so yeah so you're not on call the only time you're on call is if you want to do out of hours shifts so obviously it's called out of hours because it's on social hours so that's mm -hmm. when you should be at home but you're coming to work so they have to pay you more for doing oh. that because it's on social the same thing that happens when you're in hospital and you're doing nine shifts if you any rotation you're doing, if you do more on calls, you get more money because that is on social hours. Oh, it's okay. If you do weekend, you get more money because it's also on social hours. Mm. Because literally, you're contracted to work nine to five, but anything outside of that means there needs to be a compensation. 
extra money. It's mm-hmm. beginning to sound interesting. <laughs> yeah. Somebody so you can asking. be a GP and you don't go on calls. You just work Monday to Thursday. Monday to Thursday. You can even work three days in a week. Depends on wow. how much money you want. If you okay. don't want so much money, you can work two days in a week. Do other things you want to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if Wait, you, if someone if someone works two days a week, is that enough to you know cover the bills and expenses and all of that? So the GP contracts, uh, this is public, so I'm going to talk about the money because uh, it's general knowledge, yeah. So I'm not breaching any any rules here yeah, talking about it. So the GP contract depends on what part of the country you are in. Um, some parts of the country pay you ten thousand five hundred pounds or 11,000 or even 12,000 per session, right? And session means there are two sessions in a day. So morning and afternoon. So if you're doing nine to five, for instance, your nine to 12 or nine to one is one session. That's morning session. Okay. Then your two to five or your three to six is your afternoon session. Okay. Right? So imagine if you get a contract and you're doing four sessions, which is what you just referred to, two days. Okay. And you're paid £10,000 for one session, which is very, very cheap. I don't think anyone pays 10000 anymore now. I think it's ten five or 11000 So, but for the sake of easy calculation, if you get 10000 per session and you're working four sessions, which is you're working only two days, that is 40 grand. Wow. Okay. So that means your annual salary is 40,000 pounds. Fair enough. Yeah. So if you look at the tax and everything, how much will 40,000 translate to in a month? So you probably will be getting about two six or two seven or thereabout. So, and that's you working just two days in a week. So if that will foot your bills, then that's fine. Then, then you, you have the other. Free five days to do whatever you want to do that sounds very cool though and yeah, i want to yeah. be a gp <laughs> <laughs> yeah then so you, that's you, men- you mentioned the uh, fellowship so what advantage does becoming a fellow give to you i think it's just career progression yeah there are so many specialties in the UK that when you finish the training, you are not a fellow, you are just a member, which is different from what happens in Nigeria and Africa. Okay. Yeah. Because in Nigeria, any specialty you're doing, when you do your part one, you're a member. When you now finish your training, you're a fellow. Part two, yeah, you, f- you become a fellow, yes. Yeah, when you finish part two, you're, you're now a fellow. But in the UK, so many specialties, you're not a fellow even after you finish your training. You know, so you are all members, apart from few, and it's easier you become a fellow whilst you're even before you finish if you pass all your exams. Um, a few of them, but general practice, ge- general medicine, ops and gynae, general surgery, all of them. After your training, you're still a member, you're not a fellow yet. So, there are two ways to become a fellow one is five years post graduation or post CCT. Five years okay. after your training, your colleagues can recommend you uh-huh. based on your clinical acumen and the work you've been doing and your community service and say, recommend you to the college for a fellowship. 
So you're okay. not awarded fellowship. Some of them, you probably have to go do fellowship program extra somewhere, or if that is offered within your college or within the country, you can do that. So now the GP training has incorporated another scheme where there's an integrated fellowship program into the training so that when you run through the five years or four years, depends on whatever degree you are in, I'm not quite sure now, but when you run through the program, at the end of the day, you get your fellowship. So not just member, not just membership alone, you get your fellowship. So the fellowship is good for, I think, career trade, career progression, basically. Um, yeah. And some sort of authority. And also uh, it, 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 it shows you got more experience, so to say. So there are okay. certain privileges that you, that might be attached to it. Yeah. But majority of the people are, when you finish your training, you're a member and you have to wait until a couple of years for one of your colleagues to recommend you, you know, for you to get awarded fellowship. Mm. Interesting. So does extra money comes with the fellow or is this the same price? Or no, same I think it's, it's, it's the same thing, basically. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's any extra monetary, um, monetary thing that comes with with being a fellow. It's just when you post CCT, that's where the money comes. Because as a trainee, what you get paid is different from when you qualify, when you become a, a, a GP, when you finish your training and get your CCT. So I think it's just the CCT that adds extra money to, to you, not fellowship. Yeah. Okay. Basically, fellowship is just career progression and also to give you more bargaining power and give you a leverage and a specific seat, so to say, at the place of um, decision-making and all of that. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think it adds extra money. Because as a, even as a, as a new uh, graduate, like, as you just finishing your training, you can become a partner in a surgery. Okay. Yeah. You can become a partner. If the surgeon needs partners and you you are able and you are happy to get into partnership with them. You become a partner. So you don't need to have fellowship to even become a partner. Interesting. So uh, that's more like leaning towards maybe like the business part of running a practice, the GP surgery and all of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Partnership is part of owning the business and it's a bit more complicated compared to other things. So like if your salary, I explained earlier, when you have a salary contract, you just accept it and you're wrong with it. So you know how much you're getting paid. So you're entitled to annual leave, sick leave, pay and all those sort of things. But partnership is a bit different because you share in the profit and you share in the loss of the business. Ah, uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're now, yeah, you're now part of the running of the business. So you enjoy some privileges and you also bear the brunt of running the business. So if you run at a loss, so it's you're part of decision making. Yeah, how this company needs to run, who we need to fire, who we need to employ, what, uh, <laughs> what kind of contract do we want to operate on, what, how do we want our services to, how do we want to renovate our practice, how what specialist programs do we want to run? Because there are different contracts in the, G in, the, in the GP scheme. So there are GPs, there are practices and surgeries who 
just do only the essential uh, essential duties. Some do enhanced duties and some do additional duties. Some other practices do specialized duties. So for instance, obviously you are taking care of chronically ill patients and acute cases, but which are just the normal essential duties of a practice. Okay. But you can decide to set up specialist clinic in your practice, which is not the essential duties. So for that, you get paid extra by the government and you'll be commissioned by the CCG, which is a clinical commissioning guide, I think. Group or so CCG yeah, group. group. Yeah. So you be you you get special money for running that practice. Specialist so clinic. For running that, yeah, that uh, specific clinic or specialty area. So let's say you have a surgical background and you are licensed, you have the prerequisite uh, certifications, you know, to run a, a surgical center and you are in this practice. So your practice can organize to set up a surgical unit in that practice for you to run it. And that brings extra funding to that practice. So if you have a women's health background as well, so you can run fertility clinic, you can run contraception clinic, insertion of coil, implants, and all those things. The same applies with dermatology. That's why the beauty also of general practice is the ability to sub-specialize. So you can do general practice with special interest. But now it's called general practice with extended role. Okay. So what that means is for me who have an Opsongani background and reproductive medicine, fertility background. So yeah. I can set up or ask my, discuss with my practice and say, look, let us set up a fertility clinic here. Okay. And we do that. So I am a GP with extended role in women's health. So, so it means even though you originally wanted to be an option gynae and you change your mind, you don't want to do that, you want to be a GP, you still keep in touch with that part of your passion. Gynae, yeah. Yeah. So you still do that. So that's how dermatology, occupational med occupational uh, therapy, um, surgery, ENT, pediatric, so different things. You can sub-specialize in any of those. But there are prerequisites, what you need to do to get extra training for you to be able to say you are a GP with special interest or extended role in that specialty. Some of them you need to do a diploma or you need to write an exams or you need to get membership of that uh, college. Uh, that college, yeah. So, for instance, if you have MRCP, if you are into internal medicine, you have MRCP, and you are interested in, in uh, diabetes or in hypertension or in heart failure, so you can be a GP with special interest in diabetes. So most of the diabetes, the complicated diabetes cases will be channeled towards you, or you have a special day, you run diabetes clinic. Clinic. Yeah. Interesting. Somebody is saying here, he said, uh, she's saying, please let him continue with the various positions he has addressed. Okay, he has addressed the salaried GP, 
there are three other capacities in which one could work according to him. So okay. I, I presume that's after training. So once you become a GP, you can decide to become a salary GP. I think you've talked about that one. Then you mm -hmm. mentioned the, I think, partner, becoming a partner GP. Yeah. So you can be a salary GP, you can be a locum GP, you can be a partner GP. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's say if, for instance, if you're a locum GP, um, for the person who asks this, I'm doing a YouTube video on the different types of GP work you can do. That would so, be amazing. Yeah. So for locum GPs, the advantage of, I am a locum GP. I used to be salaried, but I couldn't cope with, with being a salaried because it didn't suit my lifestyle. That's not the reason why I wanted to go into GP training. I wanted GP training because I want flexibility. I want to have time for myself to run my business and to concentrate on clinical practice as well and have other time to do other things that, that fuel my passion, right? So first of all, as a salary GP, you are, I mean, as a locum GP, you, you can, you are allowed to set up a private company so you can work through your private company as supplier of labor, of clinical consulting labor to the practice you're working. So that means you get paid through your company. So that means at the end of the year, your company will have to declare their expenses and their income and you pay tax on what is left out of that in as much as you've got proof on on what your expenses are. So I think okay. that is one of the one of the perks of being a locum GP. Locum GP and okay. also as a locum GP, you actually don't have real admin responsibilities. So what that means is, is GPs don't just work, not even GPs alone. Many specialties don't just work to attend to patients alone. You attend to patients and you also have admin responsibilities. So you do letters, you do referrals, you do... Uh, setting paper and documentations but as a locum gp you don't really have that because you don't own any patients in a practice so you only come in to supply labor i mean to supply yeah labor and you don't own any patient so if you are salaried yeah there are a number of patients so if your surgery has thirty-six thousand patients for instance you might be allocated let's say five thousand patients so these are your patients for ah, instance. I see. so so your name will be on their registration. When they register, your name will be on their registration. Like this is your doctor. doctor, so, you know yeah. this is your doctor. so that means when you do blood tests, you do investigations, you go to hospital, you're admitted and you have discharge letters, they all come to your salary, your GP, who will have to action them, who will have to sign and say, oh, this blood result is not right or blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't mean that if your doctor is not there, someone else will not do it. If it's an emergency, another GP will be assigned to do all of those. But for a locum GP, you don't have those responsibilities. So you just come do your work and give the best to the patient that has been put on your list on the day. Yeah, so if they want you to do some blood, uh, to sign up blood tests, results, and all of that, you can also do that. Depends on the agreement you already had with the practice when you were accepting the job. So okay. you don't own, you don't have do, that real administrative responsibilities because you do not own any patient like that. And also the other one is that your hours are flexible. So normal salary GP might work, might have a contract to work nine to five. You as a local GP, you come and say, okay, if I don't want to work nine to five, 
so working nine to five, for instance, might mean having to see 15 patients in the morning and 15 patients in the evening, in the afternoon, which is 30 patients. So you can say, you know what? I will see the 30 patients, but I don't want to work nine to five. So I can, if I finish to see all of them by three o'clock, that's fine. I'm going home. So that's it. So you have that flexibility to do as you like, you know, but obviously the safety of patients should be your, your priority. Yeah. Yes. And you also negotiate your rates. So I come and say, okay, so I want to be paid hundred pounds per hour. I want to be paid 80 pounds per hour. I want to be paid 20 pounds per hour, whatever you decide. If the practice is happy with that, that's what you get paid. So they can't say we're employing you for 10,000 10, pounds per session. No, you're not sessional GP. You're not salary GP. So this is it. If it doesn't suit you, that's it. You walk away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the disadvantage here is that, you know, you're not part of the practice. You're just a loner. Yeah. So, it can be boring because you come, you don't have friends, you don't have people you talk to, you just see patients and go see patients. Oh. So you don't have that that community, you know. Although there is a group of locum GPs association you can you can belong to, but I mean, like in the actual practice where you work, you don't have that. Obviously, when you have lunch break and all of that, you can go to the uh, to the communal area and have conversation with them but you don't belong to let's say their whatsapp group where you can have a challenging case and you say oh i actually saw this patient today this is what i did what would you have done so you don't have that kind of uh interaction so it's a lonely place so to say and yeah for partners um okay no one other disadvantage of locum gp is because you're not salaried you don't have annual leave and sick leave pay. Ah. So if you, don't, if you don't come to work, you don't get paid. Sick, nobody's paying you. Yeah, but if you're salaried, you know, if you're if you if you're sick, obviously you have a genuine sickness. So you yeah. still get paid because you are off, and you have annual leave. You know, sometimes you have like forty six days for nine sessions, forty six days in the in the month in the year. For nine, if you're doing nine sessions, go rata, you know. So you go on holidays, your salary still comes in. But if you're local, you go on holidays. <laughs> no money. Is, you're spending <laughs> your money. <laughs> yeah. So you so find your life. One has to really, you know, weigh the pros and cons. You have to. And yeah, you really have based to. Based on your interest and what you're looking for and decide, uh, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Well, the local yeah, sounds very interesting, but uh, so basically, that's so I've talked about local, I've talked about salary, and I talked about partner as well earlier. Yeah, so that's it. So, Vicky, if you're still there, I hope he has um, <clears throat> answered your questions clearly. I don't know if you have any other questions. If you're watching, uh, we're having a chat with Dr. Pepu, we're just talking about um life as a gp in the united kingdom you know exams work becoming a fellow not deciding to be a fellow and all of that you know so then for for i know a lot of people are still you know planning to to come in you know do i i understand that plab dates are now becoming very difficult uh to get so what's your word of advice for them? 
Yes, to to get <laughs> that's a very hard one because things are different now. Things are things are changing. Very much things different, are quite different. Yeah. yeah, compared to so for people who don't know, like I started my journey about eight, nine years ago. So I've I've been working in the UK for about eight years now. So uh, then I've just been a GP for a year. Uh, my plab obviously is about eight, eight years. Yeah, eight years ago I did plab, but obviously still around the same thing year in year out with little modifications. And why I do the things I do on social media, especially on YouTube, is because I keep abreast of the changes that happen every time. So I try to incorporate that. And the spaces I know are a bit difficult to get now because there is more demand than supply. Yeah, but everything boils down to planning, planning and planning, uh, hoping that everything goes on at once, especially passing the exams as once. Some people might not have the, the uh, might not be lucky to pass the exams all at first sitting, which becomes a bit of a problem because you have to the, the the space you've managed to struggle to get you have to now struggle again to get it again get it again yeah but i think it's basically everything about medical school because for this is how medical school works medical school is not really that straightforward some people might be lucky i think i'm one of the lucky people uh going through medical school because medical school was very 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 smooth and easy for me but i think why it was that way was also because i got into medical school when i was slightly a bit mature uh because i did a first degree in human anatomy oh, okay. uh, before going to medical school in a different city so having a first degree already has exposed me to uh, basic medical sciences so so i was so to say, good in biochemistry, physiology, and anatomy before going to med school. So starting med school from second year, having to learn the things you already know already, the things you took four years to learn. So it was sort of revision for me. So, and during my part one MB, is it part one or part four, whatever they call it, like the first one you do in year three. Mm. I can't remember. I don't think I did anatomy again because I already have a degree. In so, okay. Yeah, then now move to fourth, fourth year. Um, fourth year is when you start encountering the core clinical practice, like yeah, um, pharmacology and um, from pathology and, and, and pharmacology. pharmacology. Yeah. So, but it's still application of what you've done because in pharmacology, for instance, you've done uh, neuroscience and neuroanatomy, so it wasn't that's a problem. Also, so it was. A bit easy for me, and also because I was my class president, so a bit of privilege, I would say. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, privilege in the sense that when you go for Viva, um, they just there's actually a Viva I went for. They didn't ask me anything because I got in. That was microbiology in year five, year four, yeah, year four pathology. So it was a microbiology professor. And my professor was in there. And when I got in, the professor said, oh, this is our class rep. So the visiting professor said, oh, that means he is the, uh, his knowledge is the baseline for the class. <laughs> so, so he was like, okay, so what do you want me to ask you? So I just 
said, okay, tuberculosis. And he only asked me to define it. And after that, he said, okay, go. So I'm going to use your knowledge to judge the whole class. As so, baseline. <laughs> as baseline. <laughs> as baseline. So I think that was very smooth for my class and all of that. But look, it, well, there was one, one uh, viva that was hard, pharmacology. So it was the best student that went first. <laughs> our best student like and he was best from year 40 final year so he was our bgs he went first and when they asked him instead of this boy to answer the questions he will answer and go into another thing so they will pick him <laughs> on that one ask him again so when he came back when he came out and told us what they were asking him oh boy everyone was scared <laughs> so he already raised the bar this high very high <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so for me yeah medical school was was very smooth but later on you know when i when i when I, I i did not pass my first exam in gp training yeah so that was literally like the first time i wasn't getting i didn't pass a medical exam so getting failure late in life i don't think it's a good thing it's better for you to have failure earlier really? so you learn how to deal with it so it's better to fail, fail early so you learn how to deal with it than to postpone it so it was hard for me to assimilate to come to to time to reality with the fact that i didn't pass that first exam and i think it was good for me because the time i had to practice for it again made my knowledge so so robust and so strong yeah. And that's even why right now I teach trainees. Uh, I prepare them for the, the exams. Exams. Yeah. And it has enriched my knowledge and made me a, a better GP, I would say. So sometimes also failure prepares you for the future, gives you that advantage of being better. So I'm only saying that to say that because I didn't really understand what, it means to, I mean, I understand, but I, I try to empathize with people who don't get things right. And but because I didn't really experience it and I finally did. So when I used to say, oh, medical school was easy. At some point, and I realized that, no, if you say that people who did not have it easy will feel they are stupid. Yes. So they are not stupid. It's just that they didn't do some things right. So. But what I will always say to people is that the best time to get something right is the first time, you know. So it, there is no need trying to do twice what you know you can do once. So if you can do it once, you better put in all your best and do it once. Yeah. So and what you need to do something once is to get all the necessary knowledge, to get all the support and make sure you understand the thing completely and fully so that you can do it once. So in preparing for PLAB, because the dates don't come that easily, and because also you might fail or you might have to do it again, you have to, first of all, uh, plan very, very well. You need to put your plan in, in right perspective and also be realistic about uh, your plans and your expectations and all of that, you know, and just make provision for an alternative so that if yeah. things don't go this way, yeah, then this is something else that you would do. But well, having yeah. a structure and a plan on how you want to go about it is also very, very good. 
so that even if it doesn't fall in that way, you know that, okay, at least you're going somewhere. And what I tell people these days is, obviously, if you're planning to practice in the UK, you know how you, you, you feel like you've been in one place for so long and you just didn't feel, okay, feel the nudge to leave. But the day you make up your mind and want to leave, it, it looks like, come on, do you mean I've actually been in this place this long? Like if you get very dissatisfied with everything around that place, that's because there's need for your capacity to increase. That's why, because you need to push forward, you need to go higher or you need to leave that place, which is actually a good, a good way to, to prompt you to do something different. But at the same time, you need to make sure you get it right. You know, mm. so just keep practicing, keep hoping that you get a space for your club, keep looking out and being optimistic. And the most important thing is just to prepare yourself because if you prepare yourself, use the time available that you haven't gotten a seat yet for your club or a slot to register for club, keep preparing so that if the opportunity comes suddenly, you're already prepared for it. And yeah. that's the start. Because there are patterns, there are ways to go about the exams and even doing it at first and passing, it's all about information. So when mm. I didn't pass my exams, the training exams the first time, I was asking questions, I wanted to jump straight to do the next one. And someone just told me, no, just give yourself time. And within the period I was giving myself time to ask questions, and I realized that there are better ways to study. There are things other people were doing that I was not doing. Studied, yeah, I studied so much. Studied so much and I didn't pass the exam. So, and I realized that the other people that passed it did not even study as half as I did. But there were things they did which I didn't have do. the information. And that was just the only thing I had to do. And, and like, I had extra 24 marks on what I had previously. Wow. And I didn't even study as much as I did previously. So it's about getting the right pattern, the right study materials. And it's just like medical school, having the information. Yes, info is very key. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and moving with people that have the information as well. Yeah, so those people that, you know, have a way of finding out, you know, the latest yeah. updates and all of mm. that. Yeah. That makes yeah, the difference. Wow, okay. It's already one hour. Someone said, what does it take to have one surgery? Okay, I saw that one. I don't even understand the this question. This is a businessman. So I will tell you, um <laughs> okay like having a gp surgery oh i see now yes yeah. <laughs> yeah to have a gp surgery is um obviously you have to have certain years of uh, post city cct experience and uh, then decide on what sort of practice you want to have do you want to have just a normal practice like do essential duties or do you want to do secondary uh, um, enhanced practice or specialized clinics, whatever it is that you want to do, then you now have to look for uh, people that will partner with you to form the practice. Then you now have to look at the requirements from your local CCG, uh, your P primary care network, PCN, whatever, one other stuff like that. And 
then apply to actually get one. You have to look at, put into consideration workforce, who to employ, uh, building, uh, funding, and all of that. But if you want to have a private practice, because there's also private practice which you can have, uh, you can also choose what sort of private practice you want to have. Do you want to run like a proper, proper practice, private practice, or do you want to, because I got a friend who has a practice where they do uh, a cosmetic practice. Okay. Yeah. So uh, enhancement and all those beauty stuff and all of that. So okay. you can even rent one of, if you go to Harley Street on, in London, so you got blocks of buildings and practices all over, you can rent one of them as well. And let's say if you are a GP and you just want to have a, pri a private practice where you do travel medicine. Okay. Or you want to do, um, you know how like people come from Africa to do medical tourism and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. So you can also have a practice where you just do travel medicine, basically, you know. So anything that you fancy, anything that you like, you can have a practice to do that. So you just need to get the appropriate approval and license and uh, recommendations and, um, yeah, basically approval to start that practice. If you have the manpower, you meet all the requirements. So okay. yeah, so there are private GPs, people coming to go to their GPs and they want to have something done quicker and quickly and it doesn't work or they try out of hours, it doesn't work. And they just want to have private doctor who will listen to them because for GP practices, you have a limited time that your contract allows you to talk to patients. So you, some practices okay. have 10, I think 10 is, is, is actually the, uh, the standard. But if you want to have a longer appointment with your GP, like 30 minutes, some private GPs have a, uh, a location or time for 30 minutes consultation, one hour consultation, okay. 10 minutes, depends on how much you're able to pay. Because bear in mind, they will have to pay their secretaries, they will have to pay their admin, they will yeah. have to pay everybody. So it's their business. Yeah. So they have to, but they also have regulations on what governs their practice. But at the same time, they need to be able to make enough money to pay their bills and also, you know, uh, live comfortably. So yeah, it's it's possible you can have your private practice. You can have a private partnership practice as well. You just need to meet all the requirements and get the approval from the appropriate quarters. Okay, so based on this too, for example now, okay, uh, I'm not a doctor, I'm just a business guy, right? And I have money and I want to run a practice, is it possible for me to, you know, get some GPs to partner with me to, you know, float the surgery and run it and all of that? that does that work? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can't answer that 100%, but I believe that because it's, it's a business, yeah, uh, I think it's, it should be similar to other uh, private hospitals, Okay. Of course, most of the hospitals, private ones, are run as franchises. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah, and I believe they are not owned by doctors. Okay. So they are basically business, but they will have their board of directors, and they will have the doctors on the board. On the board. So the BMI, the Spire, the Northfield hospitals, you see, that's why you don't have so many private hospitals in the in the country. So they just have few ones, and they have branches all over. So. They sort of run a franchise system. A franchise, okay. Yeah, so anyone, <clears throat> I believe, can actually own them in partnership with 
the doctors and have laid down, follow the lay down rules on how to register and how to operate. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Wow, it's already one hour, 10 minutes. Interesting <laughs> conversations. Yeah, we lost track of time. Uh, yeah, I think it's because we've been having some very nice conversation, really. Yes, let me see. Let me see. Okay, there are no more questions here. Yes, so if you're watching, uh, thank you for watching. We've been chatting with uh, okay, she too says thank you. I think he's the one that asked the question about how to own the surgery. Maybe he will come and look for you to open surgery with you. <laughs> So yeah. I'll be dropping the link to Dr. Pepo's channel because he basically does um, a lot of uh, videos on how doctors can move over, what are the steps, how do you pass your exams, you know, all of those relevant information that IMGs actually need to pass their exams and settle in properly in the UK. So I'll be dropping the link uh, in my bio down there. <clears throat> then I also then it will also be good for you to subscribe so that whenever I think he mentioned he has a new video coming up soon think about the various GP pathways so it will be also good to subscribe to his channel so that once uh, those videos pop up you'll be the first uh, to know then you can always also catch him on Twitter too we'll also share his link there I think your your DMs are open, right, on Twitter? Yeah, yeah, it's it's okay. open in as much as you're discussing something meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So please send him a serious messages, not uh, the one who say hi and disappear. Mm. So thank you once again, Doctor Pepu, for coming to you know share your journey with us. It's been a wonderful time talking to you. Uh, and I guess every other person that watched to also had uh, a good time. If you also got questions, you can still drop it in the chat, in the comment section, and here we'll tackle them uh, some other time, right? So with that, I say bye-bye and thank you for watching. Yeah, and thank you for having me. So guys, you can follow me on social media all my handles are dr pepper and on twitter uh on instagram as well and on youtube is dr pepper's hub so i'll also share this video on my channel so you can have access to it and subscribe to behind the health behind, behind the scene, the scene in health, <laughs> behind the scene in health as well. yeah good thank you man thanks for having me all right thank you everybody bye all right bye